0: Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Today, we examine the complexities of the notion of genocide and some of their some of their consequences in the real world. In order to explore that issue, we're fortunate to have with us today Dirk Moses, the Frank Porter Graham Distinguished Professor of Human Rights History at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Professor Moses is a prominent commentator on the history of human rights abuses, conflict, and on modern German history. He also edits the Journal of Genocide Research. Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today, Dirk Moses. Great to be here with you this morning. Great to have you. Thanks so much. So you have a a, a new book out uh, with the title, The Problems of Genocide, Permanent Security and the Language of Transgression. Perhaps we could begin by having you tell us what you think are the the problems of genocide.
1: Okay, that's... uh a good question and an obvious question, but not necessarily an obvious answer. Now, it, in a banal way, obviously, genocide's a problem. You know, uh, No one would dispute that. But I'm asking a different question. Uh, it's less about mass death and uh, the, the perpetrators and so forth, which is, I think, quite well known uh, to people who work in international human rights, but also in the public more generally. It's about the concept of genocide that I'm... That, I, that I'm interested in and that I think is a problem. And it's a, a problem that occurred to me over 20 years of working in the field. You know, I got my first job 20 years ago after a PhD at UC Berkeley and studying in Germany, and I returned to the University of Sydney. I'm from Australia, as you can probably guess, where a, a debate was underway about genocide against Indigenous peoples, mainly at the time in the late 90s in relation to the practice that, that persisted into the 60s of taking Indigenous children away from their families and then putting them in foster homes and so forth. There, you know, there's an analogy with the residential school system in Canada and parts of the U.S. But unlike sure, uh, the residential right. school system, they didn't go home on the summers. You know, they were permanently taken from their from their families. You know, there's a well-known film called Lacros- Along the Rabbit-Proof Fence, uh which some of, you, some of you may know, which depicts one of these episodes in Western Australia. In any event, I came back to Australia and I wanted to teach a course on genocide in global history, but of course with a, with a week or two on Australia. And there was no book for me to set. So I thought, well, you know, it's all very well for me to pontificate about German history, because my PhD thesis that then book was about Holocaust memory in Germany. Uh, which I know you're interested in as well John and no doubt many of your listeners but you know what about your own country you know that's when history becomes difficult it's when you look at the the founding violence the uh, incipient criminality of of the founding of your own state and not that of an easy target like germany where the criminality was so obvious now not only was there no book to set but when i raised the issue in class and i and i did so by inviting uh, a colleague from the indigenous studies unit in the university because it's it's important that the students hear from indigenous scholars and not from me about these issues or not just from me you know a number of students said you are insulting the memory of the victims of the holocaust by claiming that indigenous peoples were victims of genocide you know whether in australia or in north america south america and so forth right they're just completely different cases And the genocide concept really is reserved for just a very special uh, select cases, the Holocaust above all, uh, you know, Rwanda, Cambodia, um, maybe Srebrenica in in former Yugoslavia and Armenia, you know, sort of four or five cases across the 20th century. And, you know, that did lead to a teaching moment, you know, because there were students who then... Responded to that, and that led actually to a really interesting debate. Uh, but I I was struck by that the certainty with which those students uh, uttered this denunciation of my indigenous colleague, who was quite shocked actually. And I have encountered that style of argumentation again and again. And when I started a new project, which is called the Diplomacy of Genocide, which is about post-war claims of genocide in secessionist civil wars uh, in Nigeria, the the Biafra case in the late 60s, and then in East Pakistan in 1971, I was struck that that reasoning recurred. So when Biafran's and then uh, the East Pakistani Liberation Movement and Bengali's in now Bangladesh argued that what was occurring uh, to them was genocide, they were met with the the response that no no, this is what you're going through is just a civil war, horrible as it might be, but it's not it's not genocide because that the genocide for to be genocide needs to resemble the Holocaust. There was sort of a syllogistic reason chain of reasoning. And I realized that many claims of victims uh, in which there are mass civilian casualties, you know, that was beyond dispute, right? It was a categorization issue, right? Many victims of mass casualties, civilian casualties, above all, are are not getting the recognition in international law and in the international public sphere because their cases don't resemble the Holocaust. And it was clear to me as an intellectual historian, who's interested in the way language frames people's perceptions of things, is that this was a style of argumentation that itself had a history. And I determined to write a history of the genocide concept. Well, after all, it's rather new. It was effectively invented in 1943 in Raphael Lemkin's head. He published it in a book which came out in late 1944. Uh, There were a few references to genocide in the Nuremberg trials, but it wasn't one of the indictments, which were crimes against humanity above all crime of aggression and war crimes, right? But Several years later, genocide quickly surpassed those other crimes, which were until then the crime of crimes, especially the crimes, the crime of aggression. It surpassed them and then has become the benchmark for mass criminality and that which shocks the conscience of mankind, which is the in the preface or, or the rather the preamble to the UN General Assembly resolution calling for a general for a genocide convention in late 1946, versions of this curious phrase are littered throughout international uh, humanitarian declarations, preambles to the United Nations uh, Declaration of Human Rights, and so forth. Now, I was fascinated by this curious term, shocking the conscience of mankind. And it became clear that there is a history of the way, uh, initially Westerners, but it's now a global discourse, talked about mass atrocities and what the limit was, what the threshold was for that which is truly shocking and thus calls for international intervention of whatever kind. And the threshold after the Second World War was genocide and that was indentured to an image of the Holocaust which was genocide's archetype or ideal type okay so I wanted to I wanted to write a history of how we ended up with this situation with this strict hierarchy of criminality with you know genocide at the top is the crime of crimes uh, which I saw blending out lots of other types of mass violence against civilians so my normative standpoint is trying to prevent mass violence against civilians or even or even other kinds of Low-intensity but ongoing violence against civilians, like in occupation regimes and so forth, right? which we can get into. You know, why don't we find those truly shocking? You know, I'm interested in how certain types of violence were framed as truly shocking, the conscience of mankind, but others weren't. That, those categories are not natural, despite what our friends in international law and international relations, you know, they take the UN Charter as given, and then you know this is how the UN system works, the international system works, right? And international lawyers say, "Well, here's the UN, here's the other, the Rome Statute of the ICC. Let's see what applies in different circumstances." Whereas we historians are asking, "Well, why do we have these categories at all? They have a history. Uh, how did the how did the drafting procedure work, or process work? You know, which which crimes or which policies and practices were omitted, which were included?" Uh, which interests uh, were at play in these drafting negotiations, you know, whether for the genocide convention or the Geneva Conventions in 1949, which are very, very important as well. And people are working on that. So as an historian, I want to go back and and do a genealogy, and archaeology of, you know, how we ended up with this peculiar hierarchy of criminality and these, you know, array of different international crimes like crimes against humanity, war crimes, Crimes Against Peace and Genocide, which have been bundled as atrocity crimes by the UN along with ethnic cleansing, uh, which a lot of your viewers are familiar with. But rather than take them for granted, I want to understand how we ended up with this.
0: Right. It's a fascinating uh, exploration in the book. And uh, as you may know, I mean, when I did my own book on the idea of reparations for historical injustices, I came up across this phenomenon all the time so that anybody who was seeking reparations for whatever had happened to their you know, group tried to – demonstrate or establish that, you know, one could liken it to the Holocaust. So, for example, there's, you know, uh, a book about the genocide of the Native Americans. It's called American Holocaust. You know, and that was obviously not chosen randomly as a title. Um, but in any case, so you know, there, what you're saying is that there has been this hierarchization, hi- hierarchization of uh, forms of violence or of violence as such, uh, in the. As a result of the creation of this notion of genocide, which you know is so widely seen as a kind of achievement of the international community, a way of talking about a particular kind of crime and uh, a way of thinking about how it should be punished and all these kinds of things. So it's a really fascinating project. And, um, you know, you have this subtitle about permanent security in the language of transgression, transgression, and maybe you could tell us now what those Terms referred to and how they're a response to the problems
1: of genocide. Yeah, thanks for that. So the this term "shocking the conscience of mankind" was for me a way into writing a history of the concept of genocide before the concept existed. So you know, as I mentioned, uh, until the Second World War, they, this word didn't exist, and yet people had been talking about atrocity, obviously in denunciary form uh, for hundreds of years in in the West, and and no doubt in other in other cultural systems as well. But you know, I don't have those languages. And uh, Raphael Lemkin, who invented the concept, was you know, coming out of a Western legal tradition. So that's the one I investigated. And what's clear is that he distills, in one word, an entire intellectual tradition of talking about atrocities. And I call that the language of transgression. You know, this is the intellectual historian in me. I'm, in, I'm interested in political languages or idioms. right? And shocking the conscience of mankind were key words in that language. And what I decided to do was write you know, in the first two chapters a kind of potted history of those over 90 pages, starting with what I thought the origins of this was, of shocking, of conscience, and of Mankind slash humanity. Okay. And I mean the purists among us will say, you know, you have to go back to Rome. That's where it all starts, right? But I'm not I can't go back that far. Where I see the where I see the modern language of transgression crystallizing is in Las Casas' well known denunciations of Spanish colonial or imperial excesses in Latin America. In a number of books he wrote in the middle of the sixteenth century. Uh, you know, which are taught to undergraduates in this, you know, in this country, you know, along with Sepulveda's defense of the, these imperial practices, especially whether the the indigenous peoples had uh, rights and, uh, and so forth. Now, Las Casas used these terms, shocking conscience and mankind throughout these books, and they were widely translated in Europe. You know, it wasn't just that he was a, a blip on the in the in, in history is that he inaugurated a style of criticizing imperial excesses and i can't go into too much detail here but his book his books were widely translated in protestant europe uh, as a way of attacking the spanish empire by you know rival protestant empires above all the dutch and the british and they criticized spanish and and the portuguese empires for uh, enslavement and for plunder and for, for massacres. You know, that was for them what those empires signified. And, you know, this is now known as the Black Legend you know, as uh, of, of Iberian imperial rapacity. By contrast, said the imperial apologists for the Dutch and above all the British, is that we don't engage in conquest and empire, we engage in settlement and colonisation. We bring agriculture and progress, you know, to John Locke uh, in, applied in in Virginia and so forth, and we try to conciliate the natives and um, uh, convert them voluntarily through uplift in, in a kind of moral liberal empire. So here I see the birthplace in the language of transgression uh, of the other subtitle of the book, which is permanent security. Here, um, and and I'll get to the origin of that particular and peculiar phrase shortly, but from from the early modern period the the rival claims of european empires and the rival models one the black legend of the iberian the the, the exploitative uh, plunderous one versus the the settlement colonization quote unquote liberal one present us with a with a dichotomy which i see enduring into the modern period uh, and Particularly interesting for me is the liberal one, which becomes incarnated in the British Empire in the 19th century. Which, after the abolition of slavery in its own realm, then uses the British Navy to police many parts of the globe in in suppressing uh, the slave trade. But in doing so, of course, expands its own imperial realm, right? Uh, which will, you know will include selling opium. Um, well, encouraging the, the opium trade in China uh, and so forth. Um, Pax Britannica becomes a uh, becomes the vehicle for liberal permanent security, which really means pacifying the globe in the name of humanity, and that's what makes it liberal. Yeah. Uh, and Pax Americana has taken this on. You know, we're doing this not for us, or well, not only for us, but for humanity as a whole. Whereas illiberal permanent security is the assertion of a particular interest you know in the, in the nazi case german interest or aryan interests if you want to use their language right so it's 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 not interested in humanity or the welfare of humankind and it disregards international law whereas the liberal mode of permanent security uses international law as its vehicle you know it creates international law and thereby justifies or legalizes its modes of governance and domination over indigenous people initially uh, to, uh, to secure its realm and, and political power. Now, what's the difference between security and permanent security? Well, the difference is this. Permanent security means the application of state, usually state force, in order to secure for a particular entity safety not only now, but in the future forever, so it's a, quite a, a grandiose claim, which necessarily is, is going to result in, in excesses, because not only are you dealing with immediate threats, you know, which every state is entitled to do, right? Every state or individual has a right to some per- security, right? Permanent security is a kind of a paranoid hypervigilance, not just vigilance, hypervigilance, which is always looking for threats, you know, it's sort of like a hyper threat Perception, and thereby thereby stalks the world, trying to, and to to liquidate those that might be threatening in the future. Okay, so it's quite an expansive dynamic, and and I do see that in in history in many ways with expansive empires, uh, and then you also. But you see it in two ways. So it's important to disaggregate this concept. You know, there's the liberal and the illiberal version. So this might be very abstract, but the the modes of domination, the applications of violence are different. So the Nazi version, if you like, is the most extreme version of illiberal permanent security. You know, I'm, I'm, There's a long chapter on this in the book. If you read the documents closely, you know, the, the Nazis were obsessed with security and they wanted to annihilate enemy peoples of different types, but above all Jews, because they were considered a threat. Okay, Now, I'm not saying that they were, in fact, a threat. Right, It's a fantasy, I and mean, this is why we need to destu- study these fantasies as historians. But they were regarded as an act of threat. If you read Charles Friedlander's famous book on Nazi Germany and the Jews, he talks about this in terms of redemptive anti-Semitism. And he, he acknowledges that the, the Nazis regarded "Quote unquote organized jury or world jury as a you know as an active threat and menace to to Germans. Now the the liberal version is uh, not engaging in set piece genocide. Uh, it's engaging in police actions, uh, and and the temporality is slightly different. The temporality is uh, using is using military necessity, military rather than genocidal logic." in order to put down resistance to liberal empire and certainly after the saturation bombing of the second world war the atomic attacks on on japan the saturation bombing of well the, the excessive bombing of parts of north korea and vietnam the the american military has moved to precision bombing you know which is no doubt a positive development for from a civilian perspective but it does mean that there is a, an acceptance of accumulated small-scale civilian civilian casualties that over time will accumulate. So in order to, this is a logic and why it's liberal permanent security, in order to guarantee your security there in New York or the security of, uh, of farmers in the middle of this country uh, or miners, coal miners, in Virginia, if there are any left, or 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 oil diggers in Texas, you have to have drones flying around Central Asia, who are who are killing perceived threats and those that are in their immediate vicinity, and this is ongoing. And you know there are people in this country who are tracking the casualties, and it's it is a mounting, it is a mounting number. Uh, and it will be ongoing because it's legal, because of collateral damage uh, calculations, which are within international law. And that's what worries me. Uh, I'm, also, I'm obviously worried about the kind of more recognizably genocidal conjunctures that you have in Myanmar or China uh, in other parts of the world. Uh, they're, you know, They're legible as genocide for obvious reasons, right? But there's a lot of violence against civilians that's not legible as genocide, and it's not picked up even by other elements of international law, and yet they're accepted. It's not considered shocking to shock the conscience of mankind, and that concerns me. So the book is trying to rearrange our our mental and imaginative apparatus of shock. So, um, I mean,
0: the term genocide has, as we said before, kind of... Uh, created a focus, uh, on certain kinds of violence and has provided for remedy remedies, the genocide convention, you know, if, if a genocide is declared, uh, countries are supposed to intervene and do something about that, uh, set of, uh, circumstances, uh, which is one reason I think it actually has had in certain ways, relatively limited effect in reality it's had relatively little, led to relatively little in the way of prosecutions at the International Criminal Court. Mm. Uh, but it has kind of overtaken overtaken the rhetorical space, so to speak, in the way that you're describing. So I guess I wonder, I mean, this is not an abstract discussion of uh, etymology that we're talking about. I mean, you're talking about changing our perception of you know, what's going on in the world in in the the realm of violence. Uh, And I wonder, you know, what exactly, you know, from a practical perspective, what would change if, you know, the views expressed in the book were actually, you know, persuasive to a lot of people, as you just suggested, you hope they will be.
1: Yeah. Well, what I'm proposing in in a somewhat utopian gesture is that we, we wipe away this current somewhat complex architecture of, you know, war crimes, crimes against humanity, genocide, and so forth, which are bundled into uh, atrocity crimes. Uh, And as you acknowledge, you know, genocides are very, very difficult to prosecute and replace it with the crime of permanent security. And there's no way this would ever be accepted because states have limited the definition of genocide uh, to make it resemble the Holocaust as much as possible so that they have a free reign to to uh, apply their sovereign rights in the way they conduct civil wars or bomb other peoples, right? And that's why international law is so limited in many ways. That's the idea. I mean, the the somewhat Whiggish romantic view of the development of international humanitarian law and human rights law is that, you know, there's a steady upward trend of humanization of international affairs, you know, um, I could I could give you some examples of how this is put together as a narrative. But, you know, very basically is that, you know, after the First World War, we had these um, failed crimes, uh, war crimes trials against Ottoman and German leaders, you know, who lost, obviously. But they did sort of set a precedent of some kind. And then you had uh, Nuremberg, uh, which was a great improvement. Uh, then. Then you had this, you know, human rights revolution immediately after the war in the UN Declaration on Human Rights, the the Genocide Convention, the Geneva Conventions in nineteen forty nine, the Refugee Convention nineteen fifty one, and then you had the ad hoc criminal tribunals in the nineties for the former Yugoslavia and Rwanda, and then the the ICC, and then you know, this sort of an upward trend, right? Well, a number of us are thinking that you can see this as a downward trend. Uh, these these various moments in which state parties negotiated these legal instruments were, were opportunities for them to limit the scope of the law in the prosecution of state interests. You know, this is why the Genocide Convention is so limited in its application and why states have been able to get away with what they have in these various conflicts in Nigeria, as I mentioned in East Pakistan, then the Myanmar case and so forth, uh, so easily. They've been able to get away with it so easily, but then say, no, this is an application of security or military logic, which is legal, not genocidal logic. So replacing or replacing the current architecture with permanent security is designed to get away around those excuses. Okay. Because I'm focusing on state actions in terms of security rather than you know the, uh, an alleged racial intent, which is what is embedded in the Genocide Convention. It requires the intent to destroy an ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. And the way that's been interpreted in the jurisprudence is that the intent of the state or the guilty party has been to attack a group simply because of on identity grounds, which in the book I I show is a depoliticization of violence because it implies that people are attacked simply on, if you like, a motive grounds of hatred, ra- racial hatred, rather than, as states always claim, that they they fear that group or that members of that group are engaged in an insurgency. And if you look empirically at the mass violence against civilians since the Second World War and indeed before then, you will see that they are embedded in complex, uh, complex circumstances where there is a lot of political violence. Okay, and racialization processes have been ra- uh, wrapped up with securitization processes. So, by focusing on excessive security as a crime rather than you know, Holocaust-like events, which can never be really proven. I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that states would be forced to justify their policies put before the international public sphere and say why they're proportionate and reasonable, and uh, and in doing so, rather than just saying it's not genocide," so leave us alone, which is what they've been doing so far, or as in say the Darfur case, uh, which gives you a very, very good sense of the way hierarchies of Criminality are perceived in international relations. You know, the 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 when the UN report came out in two thousand and seven and said what's happening in Darfur is not genocide but crimes against humanity, at least in part. There was an audible sigh of relief in Khartoum and among some members of the African Union. It said, oh, okay, that's not so bad. Whew, kind of we we're off the hook here, as if crimes against humanity are not shocking and outrageous. But that's what we've come to. Um, now, as a footnote here, the lawyers listening will, will complain that in the ICC statute, there is no hi- hierarchy of criminality, that war crimes and crimes against humanity, and above all, genocide in relation to crimes against humanity, are not in a hierarchy. That may well be true, but it's not not the public perception, and, and it's certainly not the perception that the UN gives in its public statements. So, in effect, as a political fact, there is there's definitely a hierarchy. So I'm, I'm trying to get away from hierarchies so that when a state is accused or a party, a non-state party as well, is accused of a crime of permanent security, they, they are forced to justify why the, the action they've undertaken is, is legitimate and proportionate.
0: I think I want to ask you a question now that uh, is, you know, apropos your background as an intellectual historian. And it's about, you know, the kind of argument that you're making and whether we're not sort of observing uh, a kind of trajectory of the way in which World War II was processed. So it seemed to me a number of years ago, if you went to a bookstore, I mean, if you went to a bookstore 30 years ago, you would find a big section on World War II. And then over time, basically, you've got a small section on World War II and a large section about the Holocaust. And then over time, there was a kind of shift away from an exclusive focus on the Holocaust and a broader focus on genocide and the kind of hierarchy that you've been describing. And I, and I wonder whether in some ways what we're talking about is a kind of shifting uh, you know, relationship to that set of events, that has to do in part with the passing of the last of those who lived through them. Uh, Does that uh, make sense as a kind of interpretation of, of some of this, at least? I mean, not the substance of your argument, but you know, the fact that people are thinking in this kind of way more.
1: Yeah, that's really fascinating. The, the, the hold on the imagination, the moral and political imagination of mass criminality that the second world war exerts, you know, above all the Holocaust is, uh, is is striking, but you know it is. It's partial. Uh, it's not just that the Holocaust or D-Day occupied. It's that the the bombing of civilians has been forgotten, largely. And, you know it, it could be there because it you know it's integral to the way World War II was fought and won. I'm going to read out a little a little passage here from uh, Robert Jackson, who the who was of course the uh, the American chief prosecutor. In the uh, Nuremberg trials, and a celebrated, a celebrated jurist here, uh, who would, who would be seen as a, an icon of, um, you know, international law and and justice. But here he is writing an article in New York Times magazine in September 1945, soon after he'd arrived in Germany and was engaging in the preparations for the trials, and. He's, he's trying to prep the American public for the trials, but also for the Cold War, which is brewing. The article was called The Worst Crime of All. Now, it's not the Holocaust here. He, he said it's aggressive warfare, which was the supreme crime, because all other war crimes derived from this act of invasion. Now, from the terrible ravages of the war that he witnessed as he toured the defeated Germany and learned of his crimes... He drew further conclusions. He wrote, if there are to be future wars, we have got to win them by being better killers, by killing more and killing more quickly than the enemy, by killing with less risk to ourselves. Now, these are our words. So these are his words. In making this declaration, he then proceeded, which is for a lawyer quite remarkably, to advocate violating the principle of distinction between combatants and non-combatants by casting warfare as a conflict between people's And not solely between military forces. So he was reasoning here like the interwar, um, air war um, uh, theorists in the 1920s and 30s. There was a large debate about aerial bombing and whether to bomb cities, whether it was moral and so forth. Um, And he, he was echoing their arguments. He said although he didn't mention the allied bombings of German and Japanese cities, which had just occurred and killed hundreds of thousands of civilians, he was thinking, of course, of the future war with the Soviet Union. And he he wrote the following. And this is, of course, to the American public in the New York Times magazine. For the obvious, for the, sorry, the fact, for the fact is obvious that modern war has become more and more a struggle between whole populations and not between armies alone. The issue is. Which shall be subjugated? and which will survive now you know, i was quite shocked when i read that because that is already moving into a kind of genocidal space where you know entire populations are considered as an enemy and and liable to destruction through through air warfare through bombing uh, rather than just the military forces you know. and uh, what's what's so curious for this style of reasoning for a lawyer like him is it violates the principle of distinction between combatants and non-combatants you know which is what I'm interested in uh, and and his his rationale rationale was then taken up into the way that the the American war North Korea and in Vietnam was waged you know and, and led at, at least in the Vietnam case uh, which is not one you mentioned to the um, to a debate about what the what the Americans were doing in in Vietnam was genocide. Now that debate fizzled out in the, se- the late 70s because in the end the critics who were on the left and anti-war obviously couldn't make out the case that the American campaign in Vietnam sufficiently resembled the holocaust, okay, which it didn't obviously, right? they are very different situations. I don't think you should be, people should be engaged in 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 sort of sloppy analogizing, right? Um, I mean, what's so fascinating about this debate as well as disturbing is that kind of ended it, you know, by the time Reagan is in, uh, uh, elected here. And then we have a revival of Cold War uh, chest beating and and remilitarization of foreign, American foreign policy. And then in the 90s, when you get these genocidal situations in, in Africa and in and, and the Balkans, you you get a revival of the of the genocide rhetoric in a new field called genocide studies, which has developed since then. You know, and I'm involved in. I edit the, the major journal in the field. Um, and genocide studies as a field, and though in the NGO sector, that that utilises that term and pushes for American intervention to stop those genocides. So genocide studies becomes and the genocide rhetoric, the interventionist-preventionist rhetoric, becomes a vehicle for American interventionism, which in many ways is a continuity of the militarization of American policy that was criticized in Vietnam. Um, So, And it's done in the name of now global security. And uh, it's no accident that one of its icons, Samantha Power, is a proponent, or was a proponent of the destruction of the Libyan state in 2000, you know, 10 years ago, which has led to catastrophic consequences for the people of North Africa uh, and Europe indirectly as well. Uh, so, you know, you can see that I, I have concerns about the way the genocide concept can be mobilized to destabilize regions, you know, even if it Times it's well intentioned. I, I I understand the intent, the, the motivation to prevent genocide. Believe me, I've I've experienced it too. But uh, one needs to be very very careful about it, the politicization of it. And I think it makes much more sense to think in terms of you know excessive securitization rather than just looking for episodes of genocide around the world that that one can prevent, and and then thinking that one can mobilize massive state power in doing so when that when that application of state power is is itself implicated in 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 killing quite a lot of civilians
0: so let me ask you one last question before we let you go Um, your book is really about you know categorizations of violence uh where they stand in our moral hierarchy so to speak um, so it's not about numbers, but uh, a number of years, a few years ago, Steven Pinker, you know, wrote a big and widely you know received book about basically the decline of violence in the modern world and in the 20th century, actually, in particular, which seemed, you know, counterintuitive to a lot of people, uh, given what had happened in both the First and Second World Wars. Um, and, you know, the genocide idea is meant to... Uh, stanch a particular kind of violence, but it's it's meant to, you know, sort of undercut violence more generally. And I wonder if you have a view on that, you know, debate, which has died down perhaps in the meantime, but, you know, it's a matter of concern certainly to those of us in the social sciences who are concerned about violence. I mean, has it, have we done any better at kind of reducing the amount of wanton criminal violence that takes place in the world?
1: Yeah. So I think it all depends on where you look. I think it's, it's clear that interpersonal violence for uh, privileged, mainly white people in the West, has definitely declined. I mean, even in my lifetime, I, I mean, to think of a banal example, and I'm a, I'm a classic Generation X, that it was quite common when I was a, a schoolboy, you know, until the mid-80s, that students would be subject to the cane as we call it, so corporal punishment from the headmaster. I mean, that's now unthinkable. You know, I mean, you, the, the teacher would go to jail for, for child abuse if they did that today, right? So that that's taken place pretty quickly, right? And that, that is, of course, a banal example. For those that are, are, are less racially privileged, uh, there seems to be plenty of violence Going on, and a lot of that, of course, uh, is is linked to to poverty and and, and class status and uh, access to re- lack of access to resources and so forth. So it's important to disaggregate, you know, within Western societies and not just between a global north and a global south. The you know much depends as well on how you define violence. Uh, as I understand it, Pinker is is less interested in notions like structural violence, or the the you know the the in the asymmetries in power, which result in uh, the dysfunction of, of um, state capacities in the global south through structural adjustment programs and, and so forth, uh, which then indirectly lead to uh, push factors and then, you know, massive migration flows from Africa into Europe, which has, has led to quite a bit of uh, fatalities in the Mediterranean. And uh, uh, then not to speak of... Um, the, the hyper exploitation of sweatshop workers in Bangladesh uh, so that so we can buy some cheap t-shirts and and nike shoes and things like that so i think you know once once you sort of broaden the the understanding of what violence can look like then it's displaced from from the inside to the outside so in order that we can live less violent lives the the other people have to endure various types of violences um, so you know it, it, there's less stress in our lives uh, but that here I am speaking then to a privileged audience if you like but the but a condition of possibility of, of this uh, comfortable lifestyle is the is the violent existence of of people not only in other parts of the world but also in this country as well so other people i mean people have made this criticism to pinker already i'm not saying anything that others haven't said there's there's a terrific review of his book actually by john gray the philosopher in the guardian which is you know very worth looking at so you know i'm i'm i don't think it makes sense to sort of statistically try to track you know violence of one kind you know over the centuries as he's done in order to to argue that the enlightenment project you know, narrowly defined as he does it is is still ongoing. I think if you look at it globally and capaciously in terms of, you know, what violence is, then you'll see that, that, you know, mode privileged modes of existence are predicated on the displacement of and deterritorialization territorialization of violence to elsewhere. Uh, I think that that'd be a more holistic way of looking at it.
0: Well, Thank you, Dirk Moses. You've given us a lot to think about uh, as we go forward, a lot to think about in terms of violence and genocide and moral hierarchies and much else besides. So thanks so much for joining us for today's episode of International Horizons. I want to thank Dirk Moses of the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill for sharing his insights about the problems with the concept of genocide and what we might do about them. Remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on SoundCloud, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank the Otto and Fran Walter Foundation for its support of our European-oriented programming. I also want to thank Risto Voinov for his technical assistance and Meryl Sovner for helping to produce this episode. I also want to thank uh, and acknowledge Duncan McKay uh, for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for this show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.